invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning and grab your Bibles and you can open them with me to Revelation chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. And actually, I'm going to... uh, I'm going to back it up to the last sentence of chapter 12. There's a little bit of question as to where chapter 13 actually begins. Uh, I'm going to go with, I'm going to start at uh, one sentence uh, at the end of chapter 12. So it says, And he, referring to the dragon, stood on the sand of the sea. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. And one of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And they worshiped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise his authority for 42 months. It opens its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is, all those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given to it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name was not written in the book, written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and the faith of the saints. This is the word of God to his church this morning. You may be seated. All right. I noticed the guys put red back here, maybe too, for that fiery red dragon or something along those lines. Um, hey, how about those Phillies, all right? Am I right? One, one game away from, from the World Series. Uh, it's been a fun October, a fun October, unlike the, the likes of which we haven't seen around here for, for quite some time. So uh, that's good news for celebrating that. Um, one thing I'm noticing, <laughs> I'm out of shape when it comes to watching commercials, <laughs> I don't normally watch, we don't normally watch commercials in our house. We don't often watch network television. We're usually on Netflix or, I don't know, Amazon Prime or something along those lines. It's rare that we're watching live television like that, and so we have to do the commercials. Little Georgia uh, is always saying, is this a commercial? <laughs> yes, Georgia, this is a commercial. Right? And, oh, man, what a time to uh, all of a sudden be thrown back into the wonderful world of commercials, right, because it's also election season. And so as you're watching these Phillies games, right, a half to two-thirds of these commercials are these just ugh, ugly, despicable, rage-filled, you know, uh, attack ads from one side to the other, you know, of all these different uh, candidates and campaigners and all that stuff. And so it's, it's like this 
Yeah, well, anyway, it's just like back and forth between the, the, the heights of enjoyment of the Phillies games and then, oh, man, i got to watch this commercial. So that's usually when I get up to get more snacks or barbecue or whatever it is. Okay, but one thing, like if you watch those, some of those political commercials, you might, you, you'll probably notice that only a select few of them are actually put together and uh, paid for and produced by the actual candidate himself, right? Those are usually the ones where it says, I am so-and-so and I approve this message, right? The others, you'll often hear... At the end, this was paid by the concerned citizens of so-and-so. Or, what, or you'll see like a, you know, a line down the bottom paid for by the political action committee, you know, whatever. Like the majority of those commercials that you're watching are actually political action committees that are paying for producing and pushing these ads to sort of prop up their candidate who they're hoping will carry out their desires, wishes, or agenda if he gets into office. Right? There's sort of these political action committees and groups that kind of wield from the, the shadows and pay for and promote these things to push the candidate. I'll say that in our text today, we sort of have something of a similar scenario. Um, two weeks ago, uh, when we were last in Revelation, right, we, which by the way, if you're new with us, we're, we're spending some time in the book of Revelation, which is this delightful book, but it's this wild book and a book unlike anything we're ever usually accustomed to reading. It's apocalyptic literature, right? So it's got all this vivid graphic imagery. It it conveys God's truth to us via images. You know, the Bible conveys truth sometimes through poetry, sometimes through letters, sometimes through history. And then it's got this rich uh, genre of apocalyptic literature that conveys truth uh, through images, right? And so as part of this image, uh, we've been introduced in the past, uh, chapters 12 and chapter 13, to sort of the enemy, right? And chapter 12 was this grand introduction to this fiery red dragon, the ultimate enemy, the Satan, who stands opposed to who God is, to all of his purposes and creation and redemption. And this dragon is in a fit of rage when we last left him. Right, he's in a fit of rage because uh, he's suffered a pretty climactic defeat. He's been cast out of heaven. He can no longer make accusation in the courtroom of heaven anymore. He no longer has any influence over the ultimate affairs of church of history. Right? And so he throws this cosmic temper tantrum against God's people, against the church. Right? He no longer has any standing in heaven. And so in all of his rage and all of his furious energy, he directs that towards the church. And what we see in today's passage is sort of how he wields that warfare. And in particular, the way he does it is that he works behind this beast that he rises and he summons from the depths of the sea. It's actually a very dramatic scene that we have here. You got to put yourself there. You got to you know, watch this dragon as he is standing on the sand of the sea. Right? The sea which, and again, put yourself in the mindset of an, of an ancient interpreter. Right? All ancient people, aside from maybe a few mariners and whatever, like they viewed the sea as the abyss of chaos. Right? The domain of the forces of evil and chaos that would love nothing more than to just tear at the fabric of the world that they live in. It's a scary place. Right, so see this dragon standing on the sand of the sea, you know, and watch him just 
dragons have little arms. Watch him, you know, you know, come like summon up his secret weapon. And right as he's doing this, like you see the, the storm clouds begin to swirl and the, and the waves of the sea begin to churn. And then slowly rising up out of the sea comes this beast. And you begin to see well, not just one head. This thing's got seven heads you know, moving all around. Each head has different horns and crowns on the head. And those heads have mouths of lions, right? Lions which can tear at their prey and just devour them, right? And as it rises more up out of the sea, you see it's got the, you know, the body of a leopard. It's nimble and agile and can just go wherever it wants in the landscape, right? And it rises up even more. You see it's, it's got its hands and feet and as paws of bears, Right? Most deadly weapons of a bear, right? He just swings that paw and can just totally decimate whoever, whatever poor victim is standing in front of him, right? So this, this beast rises up out of the sea, and it's this beast then, right, that we hear that the dragon gives his power and his authority and his throne, right? So in other words, the beast is going to execute his warfare, or sorry, the dragon is going to execute his warfare through this beast. He gives to this beast power, authority, a throne, and as he has now the power and authority and the throne, like all the nations and all the people are, are marveling at this beast, saying, who is like the beast? Who could possibly stand against the beast? And the beast is given a mouth to utter claims of sovereignty, blasphemous claims. It's got blasphemous titles on. Okay, so here's our goal this morning. Our simple goal, I feel like chapters 12 and chapter 13 are are like set up chapters really for the rest of the book. We're being introduced to the opposition here. And so in one sense, what we're doing this morning is we're just kind of getting a lay of the land, setting us up for things that we're gonna be talking about in weeks ahead. But our our simple goal this morning, so our simple goal might, might just simply be to wrap our heads around this beast. What is this beast? Who is this beast, right? And then I think there are a couple practical implications as well that we're gonna, we're gonna see towards the end that the text lays out for the church as well too, okay? So that's our goal here this morning. Let's just try to get our head around, understand who this beast is, and this makes some just preliminary practical applications which will set us up for the weeks to come, all right? All right, so here we go. Who, who is this uh, beast character here? What, what's going on with this beast? And the first thing you need to see to get at this uh, is that this dragon, as he's executing his warfare, he goes at it with a team of three, right? You've got the red dragon, and then here in verses 1 through 10, we're introduced to beast number one. And then next week, when we come back to the end of chapter 13, we'll be introduced to beast number two, or the false prophet, Okay? So this is the dragon's team of three. So now here's a question for you. Right? Who else in the book of Revelation, who else in the whole book of the Bible operates as a team of three? Yeah, the Trinity, God, right. Yeah, some simple Sunday school answers here. We're, we're, start, we're aiming low here, right? God, yes, right? Uh, that's the you know, foundational uniqueness of the Christian faith, that we believe in one God who operates as three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Satan says, well, that's a good idea. <laughs> Let me try that. <laughs> right? Which gets us to you know, something that you're going to see all throughout this book. That Satan is this enemy who dabbles in counterfeits and cheap knockoffs. 
right? He sees, oh, God does this. So, okay, well, I'm going to do just like God. God. Satan is like one of those, you know, bullies on the playground. Some little kid comes up to him and says, you're a bully. He says, well, you're a bully. He says, well, that's a good comeback. You're a good comeback. What are you doing? What are you doing? Right? It's just this imitation game back and forth, right? And so, you know, uh, the dragon, if you will, is the imitation of God the Father. And then uh, this beast, in one sense, is like the cheap counterfeit knockoff of God the Son or Jesus Christ. Right? And if you just look at some of the descriptions of the beast, right, you can start to see some interesting similarities, right? This beast is given from the dragon power and authority and a throne. Just like when we first met, well, not when we first met, but when we met Jesus in chapter 5 as the lamb, right? He's ascending to the throne. And, as, and you know, the father is giving to him all power and authority as well, too. Right? And then, you know, as the beast gets his power and his authority, right, then all the nations come around and they worship the beast. And they say, who is like the beast? Well, in the same way, when the lamb ascends to the throne and is given the power and the authority from the one seated on the throne, all of heaven and all the choirs of the earth start shouting great songs of praise. Worthy are you to receive honor and glory and power and wisdom and might. Of this beast... Well, this beast has, we'll see next week, uh, he's got a mark and a seal that he puts on his followers, just like Jesus marks and seals and keeps and preserves his followers. Right? This beast, even did you pick it up? Uh, this beast has a mortal wound that he wears, right? That he suffered death in some way, but he's overcome that, right? Think about how when we were introduced to the lamb, Right? What did John say when he looked at the lamb? He saw the lamb had something of a mortal wound as it's ascending to the throne. Right? All these similarities, uh, on and on we could go. Jesus, you know, the lamb has many crowns. The beast has many crowns. The lamb has glorious names. The beast has blasphemous names. Right? On and on we go. In other words, this beast is the counterfeit, cheap, knockoff Christ. Or, as he's often referred to, he is the anti-Christ, right? And before we move on from that point, let's just pause there for just a second because I think that's a significant thing that the book of Revelation is wanting to show to us about the dragon, about Satan and his whole tactics. And I think it's something important for us to listen, that Satan dabbles in counterfeits. He puts forth cheap knockoffs, right? He's one who masquerades as an angel of light, which I think makes him particularly deadly, right? Because it'd be one thing, like if the dragon was just this hideous dragon always in your face and always trying to get you to do wicked and horrible and despicable things, right? Then at least on the one hand, you could say, okay, I can see very clearly where the lines are drawn here and what is of God and what is not of God, what is good and righteous and what is wicked and evil, Right, but when you have this, this enemy who part of his fundamental tactics is to be one of imitation and to dabble in counterfeits and to masquerade as an angel of light, right? Well, that's where it gets a little bit you know, more difficult to see and to discern. There's a note, what there's that old truth that you know, every powerful lie has a small element of truth to it. And that's what gives it sort of its power. In a similar way, this Satan, he has a small measure of truth to him, or he parades himself in this measure of truth, which gives him this sort of insidious power. 
when I was thinking about this and I was working through the sermon, an example that came to my mind, I think it's connected, but the example that came to my mind was from my early days in ministry as a youth pastor. I had taken one of the high school guys out for dinner and we were at Burger King. We lived large back then, right? And we're sitting there at Burger King and we're just talking about life and whatever. And, and I knew that, you know, this guy was in a relationship with another young lady uh, in the youth group. And, you know, we would talk about that. How's that going? You know, you're being honoring to God and all that. And, and, and just through the course of that, you know, he's saying, yeah, man, I can see myself spending the rest of my life with this person. And we started talking about marriage. And somehow in the course of the conversation, we got into the business of what marriage and, and a wedding is. And somehow I said there, you know, at the end of the day, really what a marriage is, is a covenant between two people that they make before God, right? I don't even know why we were going down this road. But, you know, we were talking about in contrast to, you know, when the state pronounces you marriage and gives you a married license and considers you married. Well, okay, that's fine. But what really counts, I was telling him, was that this covenant, this, this covenant that you're making with someone before the presence of God. We went our separate ways at the end of the night, thought all was good. It was the next day when we were in, back in the early infant stages of social media. But thank God for social media because at that time, I think that's the only time I've ever said that phrase. Never mind. But at that time, it was very important because I happened to notice that on this guy's social media feed, uh, he said, hey, me and my girlfriend, we made an, a covenant before God last night. So we're pretty, and, and right away, I knew what was going on with this guy. This was a hormonally enraged uh, high school guy. <laughs> and he's thinking, well, if I just make a covenant with this girl and I pledge myself to her and she does it to me, well, then we can do whatever we want because who needs a state to give us a marriage license and all that? Point being, uh, there was some measure of truth, I think, to what I was saying and what we were talking about there. But this guy and his hormones and whatever else was taking that measure of truth to lead it down very dangerous and, and not right roads. <laughs> and I feel like that's part of what Revelation would have you see about the tactics of the enemy. That he takes little bits of truth or little things, counter, counterfeits or imitations of God, and he holds that before you, maybe as part of his tactic to lead you down deadly roads. You know, I think of the woman, maybe, or the wife who, you know, thinks, well, God, Jesus said, he has come that we may have life to the full. And God created me to live in loving relationships. And he's called my husband to love me the way Christ loves the church. All true and good things, right? But then maybe she starts to think, but my husband is not loving me the way Christ loves the church. And I'm not living in a very loving relationship right now. And my life is not really feeling very fulfilled or enjoyable to the full. And so I think that God would bless me if I choose to move on and press deeper somewhere else into a relationship of love and happiness and fulfillment or whatever. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe somebody here says, ah, you know, I don't get a whole lot out of, you know, coming to church here. The pastor, he talks too much about Phillies and cheesesteaks or whatever. And the music is okay, but it's not the music I would listen to in the car. I can get much more if I would just, you know, on a Sunday morning, go for a hike and go find a nice secluded lake somewhere and grab my Bible and just read my Bible and pray and sing songs of celebration to God that way, right? Again, maybe some measure of, I don't know, some goodness or truth there. But, you know, then to take that and say, well, so I'm pretty sure God would bless it if I just decide to do that. Really? Are you so Sure. Or again, you know, as you're, we're coming up into this election season, right? We know 
The Bible is calling us to take up the cause of the afflicted, to take up the cause of the oppressed or those who are overlooked, whether it's through social inequities or whether it's taking up the right of the life of the unborn or taking up those who are oppressed by government in whatever sort of ways, right? And so we know that there's a good thing here. And then we start to, we watch these attack ads and we think that's the way power moves and that's the way we're going to take up the cause of the afflicted. And so we start to think, okay, yeah, here's how this works. I respond rage with rage, power with power, violence with violence, right? Again, really? Are you so sure that's how this works? In other words, you see the point that's being made here? Anytime you have an enemy who, part of his tactics is to dabble a little bit of truth and goodness before you to, man, that's dangerous stuff. It's stuff that calls for careful discernment of the life of the follower of Jesus and the life of the church. And hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to that. But let's keep going, okay? So there's the, there's the big picture, you know, to see what's going on here. This Satan is a counterfeit, uh, a cheap knockoff trinity. This is our unholy trinity, Okay? Now, let's talk a little bit more about this beast. How do we make some sense of this beast and who he is and what he looks like and whatnot? Here's another rule of apocalyptic literature. We've been talking about the rules of apocalyptic literature as we've been going on. Another rule of apocalyptic literature is that it borrows a lot of its imagery from other biblical sources. Or... In the case of Revelation, it borrows its imagery from Old Testament sources, in particular the prophets and other apocalyptic literature in the prophets. And this passage of this beast, this has Daniel 7 quite literally all over it. If you go back into the book of Daniel, uh, Daniel is recounting the story, the life of God's people as they are struggling in exile under Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. And in chapter 7, Daniel, he gets this dream, an apocalyptic dream. And, and in this dream, in a similar way, he sees the waters of the, of the, of the sea beginning to be to churned up. And out of the sea come four beasts. One, a leopard. Another, a lion. Another, guess what? A bear, right? And then there's the fourth, which doesn't have a whole lot of description, just has teeth and claws of iron, right? And what's interesting is that if you keep reading through chapter 7, he gets an interpretation of that dream, and he's told that these four beasts represent four successive kings and kingdoms and empires and seats of power that are just going to wage against God's people, right? And so most commentators would think that when you come here into Revelation chapter 13 and we see this hideous beast, well, it's got Daniel 7 written all over it. It's not four beasts, it's one. So like this beast seems to just be a conglomeration of all the beasts of Daniel chapter 7, where it's a conglomeration of all these kings and kingdoms and empires, seats of power that wage against God's people. And so here's the thing. Put yourself in the mindset of, you know, someone in the ancient church. Let's say you're part of the church of Pergamum. Remember Pergamum, chapter 2, one of the churches that they got a letter from, or letter 2. All right, and let's say you're, you're one of the members of the church of Pergamum, and you're starting to feel oppression, and you're starting to feel hardship and suffering. Right? Maybe you've been ostracized from your community. You've been alienated from your neighbors and family. 
Maybe you've lost your job. Maybe you're starting to see loved ones be carried away into prison. Or maybe uh, you remember that guy Antipas. Remember from chapter 2, Antipas, who lost his life because of his testimony to Jesus. Right? And if you had asked somebody in the ancient church, if you had asked somebody in Pergamum, okay, so who do you think this beast is, as he's represented the conglomerates of kingdoms and kings and powers that wage against the church. Who do you think this beast is? Well, probably nine out of ten people in that church, if not all ten of them, would say, well, that's pretty easy. Uh, This beast represents Rome. And this beast represents the Roman Empire. This beast represents Caesar, who's waging against us in the church. This beast, clearly, it represents Rome that's going out there proclaiming its blasphemous gospel that Caesar is Lord. Or that's proclaiming the good news of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome throughout all the lands. Right? This Roman Empire that is so built on power and might and authority so that all the people seemingly all the world over are just bowing in worship to it. Or this Rome which, you know, mints these coins that we have to use for money. And on the coin has imprints of the Caesar. And over top of the Caesar has inscriptions of... Caesar, son of the most high, or Domitian, Curios and Theos, Lord and God, right? These blasphemous titles. And this Rome that demands that we come and we worship and we offer incense and we make sacrifices and we pledge our devotion and our allegiance to Rome. Otherwise, we feel the weight of their wrath. Actually, if you ask me, this is exactly why. If you go back and you read chapter 2, and Jesus is writing to the church in Pergamum, he says to them, I know where you dwell, that place where Satan's throne is. And yet you have been faithful to my name, and you have not misrepresented me, and even in the days of Antipas, who was put to death. Right, and the thing about Pergamum, Pergamum was this little town that sat in the shadow of this massive hill. And on top of the hill was the mighty Acropolis. That's the defended part of the city. And in the middle of the Acropolis was literally this massive temple to the imperial cult. Right? That's where everybody was expected to go and to burn incense and make sacrifices and pledge their allegiance and their devotion to King Caesar and declare Caesar is Lord. And if you didn't do that, well, you felt the swift rage of that imperial cult. Can you maybe see why Jesus would say, I know where you dwell, where Satan has his throne, right? Which is the whole point, right? The whole point here is that Satan, the dragon, is working, you know, twisting his claws, you know, whatever it is, working through these seats of power, these kings and kingdoms and emperors that he has established and given power and authority to. So here's the question then. Well, what are we saying? Okay, that Rome... Was Antichrist, that Rome was the beast, and I guess, okay, done. Because, hey, the Roman Empire fell a long time ago. Rome is now just this, you know, picturesque town in Italy on the Mediterranean, which really doesn't have a whole lot of impact on my life. So we say, are we saying here that I don't need to worry about Antichrist type stuff anymore? Uh, well, not so fast. Bear with me. 
Let me draw this out just a little bit further. Oh, I should say too, again, we're just setting up a lot of things here. And if we had time there this morning, I would love to show you in some of the ongoing descriptions of the beast, how there are a lot of similarities with the way Rome would have been described back in the ancient world. We'll get there when we get there. I'm not going to dive there now. But one thing I do want to point out from future descriptions of this beast, this beast is referred to as the one who was, the one who is not, and the one who will yet rise again from the, the abyss. Think about that. Think about uh, the other thing about this beast, right? It's got this mortal wound. In some way, he seemingly has suffered death, but he's back again. Or think about how the text says that this beast is given authority to rant and rave and proclaim its blasphemies and wage war against the church for 42 months. Right? You remember that time frame, 42 months? It's also 1,260 days or three and a half years or times, time and half a time. This symbolic period of time, which keeps showing up throughout the book of Revelation, this symbolic period of time referring to this time when the dragon wages his war against the church. Right, the symbolic period of time, which, based on how I'm looking at this, and many others, right, began the moment that dragon was kicked out of heaven. The moment he suffered his climactic defeat, and now in his rage takes his temper tantrum and turns it towards this church. Right, the symbolic period of time, which then will end when this dragon finally is put to his ultimate end when Christ returns. In other words, this beast is given permission to exercise his authority, his reign, to wage the dragon's warfare for this full 42 months, for this full period of time between the ascension of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Which is to say that maybe this beast is not just a solitary historical figure. It's not just one king or one empire or one kingdom, but is a recurring King, kingdom, empire, seat of power, right? He's the beast who was, who maybe is not for a time, who maybe suffers death, but then he rises out of the abyss again. And maybe he'll go to his destruction again, and he'll rise out of the beast again. He'll go to his destruction and do it all over again. Or maybe it's put most simply by John himself. Not here in the book of Revelation, but actually in one of his epistles, 1 John, where he reminds the church My little children, remember, we are in the last days. You have heard, Antichrist will come. I tell you, many Antichrists have already come. And that's how you know we are in the last days. Or he goes on to tell them, yo, hey, anybody, any religious establishment, any civil authority, whatever, that denies the lordship of Jesus and his full divine status, that there is the spirit of the Antichrist. There's a whole lot more. I feel like I would love to keep showing you more about this. We don't have near the time. We're already almost at our hour mark here. The simple point is this, that the dragon, he's sort of a a shadow king, right? And he looms in the shadows. And part of the way that he rages his war is he gives his power to kings, kingdoms, emperors, seats of power, political establishment, all throughout the ages. And he empowers them to turn their rage right, against the church. He empowers them to utter blasphemies. He empowers them to fight his conflict. Right. So here's the simple point. You find the spirit of the beast. You find the spirit of the Antichrist anywhere. 
you find kingdoms and powers and emperors and authorities who've been given might and strength and glory and who wield that and who use that to proclaim utter sovereignty and to proclaim themselves above all other kings and authorities, even Christ himself. Or you find, you know, the spirit of the Antichrist where there are kingdoms and institutions and positions of power that are elevated and given authority and might and rule such that the people are tempted to worship. And they look and say, like, what, what kingdom is like that in all the world? What kingdom, who could possibly stand against that kingdom among all the people of the world? You find the spirit of the Antichrist anytime you find you know, kingdoms and powers and institutions that, well, maybe at worst, or at best, mock, at worst, persecute and oppress anyone who would not fully bow the knee and pledge their fullest devotion and allegiance to them, but hold their allegiance and hold their highest devotion for Jesus and his kingdom alone. Okay? So if you ask me, there's the beast. We'll talk more about him as we go, but just real quick, in the time that we have left, so what do we do with that right now? Well, that's really part of what the rest of the book is about, but I think even our passage gives us a couple quick things. I think it's going to tell us real quick, well, first of all, this calls for active discernment among the saints. Two, it makes sure that we go about the kingdom in the manner of the king, and three, we make sure we reserve our highest worship and allegiance for King Jesus himself. I think that's part of how the text closes here. It says, first of all, let him who has an ear hear. Right? That's that call to discernment that we've seen multiple times throughout this book. If you have an ear, listen to what I'm saying. Be discerning. Right? And this is so important. It's so critical in the life of a follower of Jesus. So critical in the life of a church that is engaged in this conflict with the enemy. Right? Because if this is an enemy who, is, who dabbles in counterfeits and who masquerades as an angel of light, man, we need to be actively at this business of discerning what is good and right and is of God and what isn't. And this is where the church becomes critically important. Right? This is why we come and we worship together and we sing to one another songs that exalt the glory of and the authority and the power of Christ above all else. This is why a church, a faithful church, will commit itself regularly to the ministry and the preaching and the teaching of the word, right? It's through that word that we actively hear who God is and what he's up to and what he calls of us, what he asks of us. Right? It's critical for a church and its leaders especially. Uh, to be actively engaged in discernment, right? The elders, the leaders of the church are not called just to make decisions, but the elders and the leaders of the church are carefully called to discern how God and his spirit are at work in the church, how the enemy is employing his tactics in the church. Oh, and lastly, I would say this too. This is where it gets really critically important is that the church regularly calls its members to submit to one another, And what I mean by that, why that's so important is because I think one of the deadliest things going on in the American church right now is that somehow we have come to this notion that this whole business of me discerning God's will and his wisdom for my life, 
or this whole business of me discerning the pathway of goodness and godliness, that's a private individual affair that I do with God in my own private times of prayer and scripture reading. And I just think that's it's deadly. It's deadly when you have an enemy who masquerades as an angel of light and who dabbles in counterfeits and would love to hold out you to before you some small measure of truth to lead you down his own roads. Right? Which is why you read all throughout the New Testament that the church is this body that Christ has dispersed his gifts and his wisdom among such that when we come together and we use those gifts in the lives of one another and we submit ourselves to the giftedness and to the wisdom of my brothers and sisters, then and only then are we no longer tossed, as Ephesians 4, no longer tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and cunning deceit, but instead, as we as we use those gifts, and as we submit to one another, instead we grow up together into Christ, who is the head, right? So we make sure that we are actively discerning. That's what Revelation wants to do. It wants to pull back the curtain. Look what you're up against. Make sure you're discerning this. Make sure you're listening and seeing and discerning. Real quickly, the other thing, you have this ominous line if anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is to be taken captive, well, to captivity he must go. Or if anyone is to be slain with the sword, well, with the sword must he be slain. And it's kind of a, an ominous line. You say, well, what in the world is that all about? Well, uh, at the simplest level, we could say, well, it certainly is the case that throughout history and even around the world today, uh, there are bodies of believers who are suffering at the hand of the beast. Right? And the spirit of Antichrist, it's working in the political establishments and the kingdoms and the thrones, right? And some of them are having to go into captivity. Or some of them are perhaps even losing their lives all for the testimony of Christ. Right? We should acknowledge that. We should pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. But I think this has implications for us as well, too, who maybe aren't yet there. Who aren't yet going to be thrown in prison. Who aren't yet going to lose our lives because of our testimony and our commitment to Christ. But I think part of the calling here is to remember, hey, make sure you go at the kingdom in the manner of the king. And what I mean by that is, you know, as well as I do, that when we get caught in conflicts, or we get caught in arguments, or we get caught in battles, right? Our typical MO is to fight our battles power with power, rage with rage, violence with violence, or in other words, to fight our battles the way the beast fights the battles. And I think part of what's going on here is the text saying, yeah, make sure you fight your battles like the lamb did. That's one of the more <laughs> disturbing, annoying, however you want to call it, comparisons in the book. You know, you look at these two parties that stand opposed, <laughs> and you're dealing with a beast, a mighty beast, and a lamb. <laughs> And to align yourself with the lamb and to entrust yourself to the lamb means a whole lot. But also part of what it means is that you go at the kingdom and you go at this conflict in the manner of the lamb. Who laid down his life. Who sacrificed his life. Who suffered a mortal wound in love. Our temptation is always going to be fight power with power, rage with rage, violence with violence. And I get that. But just understand, according to the book of Revelation, that is not how the kingdom gets established. 
That's the way the beast fights. That's the way the beast wages his war. But that's not the way the kingdom of Christ advances and goes forth. That's why all throughout the book, the heroes, apart from in the heavenly places on earth, the heroes are martyrs. The ones who are willing to lay down everything to be true to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus, the true and faithful witness, who are willing to pattern their lives after the king. So it calls for discernment. calls for making sure we're going at the kingdom in the manner of the king. And then lastly, well, it's a simple call. As the text says, here's a call for endurance in the faith of the saints. Here's a call to make sure that we are enduring, even in the midst of opposition or in the midst of hardship, enduring and entrusting our lives and faith to Christ alone, reserving our highest worship and devotion and allegiance to Christ alone. You know, and I say that in particular as we're entering into a political election season, right? Because there is that temptation out there to entrust ourselves to the state. And I think it's the state that's going to be my savior and the state that's going to lead us into life and to the full. And it, who is like the state? Who can stand up against the state? The state surely is the position of power that is going to lead us into life to the full. That's a conversation for on further down in the book. We'll get there when we get there. But at the very least, make sure that our trust and our faith is in the Lamb alone, and we reserve our highest allegiance, worship, devotion to him and to his kingdom. So big picture, we're caught up in a conflict. It's conflict that the dragon is waging with the creator. And the way he fights this battle, he fights in the shadows. He empowers kings, kingdoms, empires, seats of power to wage his war on his behalf. Church is called to discern, to understand that. Church is called to make sure we go at the kingdom, not beast-like, but in the manner of the king, and make sure we reserve our highest allegiance and worship for the king. And as we do, remember this. Remember that all of this is the childish tantrum of a defeated foe. All the rage, all the warfare, all the blasphemous names and saying, all the hardship and persecution that comes, all of it is this petulant temper tantrum of a defeated foe, right? A foe who's been cast out of heaven, who has no longer has any opportunity to bring accusation against you or me or any brothers and sister before the almighty judge. The foe whose ultimate enemy, or I'm sorry, not ultimate enemy, but his ultimate weapon of death has already been defeated as the lamb has triumphed over death, right? And as he's been cast out of heaven, as the best of what he's got has already been defeated and triumphed by the lamb, yeah, he turns his rage now towards the church. But make sure you understand he's a defeated foe. And it's the lamb alone who controls the affairs of history and will lead you fully to his promised eternal kingdom. And so as the hymn says, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble, not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fail him. And I'll keep going. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them, abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. So let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, 
but God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Amen? Amen.